Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to Mysteries Abound, a collection of stories about the unusual, the strange, the perplexing, and the downright odd. In our world today, Mysteries Abound. Welcome everyone to the Mysteries Abound podcast. This is your host Paul and this is episode 76. This week's show is entitled 10 Beasts That Used to Be Mythical. But to begin the show this week, an article from the telegraph.co.uk website and it's written by Jasper Copping. The mystery behind a song played in a lifeboat as the Titanic sank has been solved after it was featured on the Telegraph website. The tune came from a musical toy pig belonging to one of the passengers who played it repeatedly to comfort children in the lifeboat and block out the sounds of the dying in the water around them. The device had been broken for several decades but was fixed last week by experts at the National Maritime Museum. However, they were unable to identify the song which was played on the Telegraph's website earlier this week. They have since looked into suggestions from readers and have been able to identify it as La Sorella by Charles Burrell Clerk and Louis Gallini, which was written about seven years before the Titanic sank with the loss of around one and a half thousand lives. The story of the pig and its song has entered Titanic folklore and is often described as being a Maxic song the music played to accompany a South American dance similar to the tango. In fact, La Sorella is also known as La Machicha, pronounced in the same way, thus explaining why it has been incorrectly described. Rory McAvoy, a curator at the museum, said, We would like to thank everyone for their enthusiastic response in naming the Titanic musical Toy Pig's tune and are delighted to be able to confirm that the tune is La Sorella, composed around 1905 by Charles Borel Clerk. The tune is also known as La Maticha, which confirms the attribution that came to the museum with the pig in 2003. 
The pig belonged to Edith Rosenbaum, who survived the sinking. It was passed to the museum in 2003 as part of a collection from Walter Lord and William McQuitty, respectively the author and film producer of the 1958 film of The Sinking, A Night to Remember, on which Rosenbaum was a consultant. By then the pig had long stopped working. However, experts at the museum carried out three-dimensional x-rays of the object to find out how the musical box inside worked. They discovered that its curly tail, which was used to turn the device, had detached and become stuck inside. By analysing the scans, they were able to insert a small brass rod to the device, turn the mechanism and play the song. They only played it three times to ensure the device was not damaged, but made a recording of the tune. The tail has now been reattached and the object is to be put back on display next week. A hairpin was also retrieved from inside, probably inserted in an effort to fix the music box after the tail had fallen off. Rosenbaum was 32 at the time of the sinking, an American fashion journalist and stylist. She had been reporting on French fashions at Paris's Easter Sunday races before boarding the ship at Cherbourg as a first-class passenger along with 19 cases and the pig. The animal had been given to her by her mother as a good luck mascot after Rosenbaum survived a car accident the year before in which her fiancé, a German gun manufacturer, had been killed. After boarding the Titanic, she had written a letter to her secretary in Paris posted from Queenstown, the ship's final port of call, in which she praised the vessel but added I cannot get over my feeling of depression and premonition of trouble. She was in her cabin when the ship hit the iceberg and saw it move past through her porthole. She went on deck before returning to collect the pig as the passengers were mustered near the lifeboats. She initially refused to get into the boat, apparently climbing back out of one of them. Like many passengers, she was apparently certain the liner would not sink. A sailor then grabbed the pig, made of wood and paper mache, with an outer layer of actual pig skin, from under her arm, and threw it into the lifeboat, telling her, You don't want to be saved? Well, I'll save your baby. She then followed the pig, climbing into lifeboat 11. She later recalled, When they threw that pig, I knew it was my mother calling me. The passengers on the lifeboat were picked up by the ship Carpathia, after seven hours adrift. After the sinking, one apparently mistaken passenger complained that another had had a real pig on board the lifeboat. Rosenbaum was said to be initially embarrassed by the disclosure she had taken a toy pig with her. She later filed two of the largest damage claims against the ship's owners for the loss of her belongings and personal injury. The writer, who, along with her pig, was depicted in the film A Night to Remember, was later one of the earliest female war correspondents, spending time with troops in trenches during the First World War. In 1918, she changed her surname to the less Germanic-sounding Russell. She later lived at the Embassy House Hotel in London and died in the city in 1975.
This 1,600-year-old goblet shows that the Romans were nanotechnology pioneers. From the www.smithsonianmag.com website, an article by Zia Morali. Researchers have finally found out why the jade green cup appears red when lit from behind. The colourful secret of a 1,600-year-old Roman chalice at the British Museum is the key to a super-sensitive new technology that might help diagnose human disease or pinpoint biohazards at security checkpoints. The glass chalice, known as the Lycurgus Cup because it bears a scene involving King Lycurgus of Thrace, appears jade green when lit from the front, but blood red when lit from behind a property that puzzled scientists for decades after the museum acquired the cup in the 1950s. The mystery wasn't solved until 1990, when researchers in England scrutinised broken fragments under a microscope and discovered that the Roman artisans were nanotechnology pioneers. They'd impregnated the glass with particles of silver and gold, ground down until they were as small as 50 nanometers in diameter, less than one thousandths of the size of a grain of table salt. The exact mixture of the precious metals suggested the Romans knew what they were doing. An amazing feat, says one of the researchers, archaeologist Ian Freestone of University College London. The ancient nanotech works something like this. When hit with light, Electrons belonging to the metal flex vibrate in ways that alter the colour, depending on the observer's position. Gang Logan Liu, an engineer at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, who has long focused on using nanotechnology to diagnose disease, and his colleagues, realised that this effect offered untapped potential. The Romans knew how to make and use nanoparticles for beautiful art, Liu says. We wanted to see if this could have scientific applications. When various fluids filled the cup, Liu suspected they would change how the vibrating electrons in the glass interacted, and thus the colour. Today's home pregnancy tests exploit a separate nanobase phenomenon to turn a white line pink. Since the researchers couldn't put liquid into the precious artefact itself, they instead imprinted billions of tiny wells onto a plastic plate about the size of a postage stamp and sprayed the wells with gold or silver nanoparticles, essentially creating an array with billions of ultra-miniature Lycurgus cups. When water, oil, sugar solutions and salt solutions were poured into the wells, they displayed a range of easy-to-distinguish colours, light green for water and red for oil, for example. The prototype was a hundred times more sensitive to altered levels of salt in solution than current commercial sensors using similar techniques. 
it may one day make its way into handheld devices for detecting pathogens in samples of saliva or urine or for thwarting terrorists trying to carry dangerous liquids onto airplanes. The original 4th century AD Lycurgus cup, probably taken out only for special occasions, depicts King Lycurgus ensnared in a tangle of grapevines, presumably for evil acts committed against Dionysus, the Greek god of wine. If inventors manage to develop a new detection tool from this ancient technology, it'll be Lycurgus's turn to do the ensnaring. And from the www.bbc.co.uk website, The Mystery of the Vanishing Gun Inventor William Cantello, a 19th century inventor, rumoured to be working on an early version of the machine gun, left his house one day and never returned. What happened to him? asks Steve Punt. In the early 1880s, the residents of Bargate Street, Southampton, were probably a bit fed up with one of their neighbours. From the cellar beneath the pub run by William Cantello would come the sound of rapid gunfire. Cantello, an engineer and gunmaker, was experimenting with a new type of gun. Nobody knew what it was. But it produced shots in quick succession. It was clearly not your average rifle. One day Cantello announced to his sons, also engineers, that he had perfected his new invention. It was a machine gun, a weapon which used the energy of explosive recoil to load the next bullet. It would fire continuously until the bullets ran out. It was revolutionary. Cantello and his sons packed it away into cases and Cantello went off presumably to sell it. He frequently travelled on sales trips as a successful builder of, among other things, ships, capstans and other bits of marine engineering. William Cantello was never seen again. Flash forward to November 1916. As millions of Europe's young men were busy machine gunning each other to death in World War I, the inventor of the weapon died a very rich man and a knight of the realm. His invention had revolutionised warfare. The centuries-old infantry advance became useless as it could be simply mown down. Consequently, armies retreated into trenches while the generals worked out how on earth to fight this new kind of war. The man who had brought about this murderous step change was quietly buried in a South London cemetery. His large and impressive monument contains no indication of what he invented, but his name is written in large letters, Sir Hiram Maxim. Maxim is not just credited as the inventor of the rapid-firing, belt-fed gun, it bore his name. The Maxim gun was the weapon of choice of the late Victorian and Edwardian era, 
bringing industrialised efficiency to the business of killing people. To use the phrase compulsory to all documentaries, it changed the world forever. Everything in TV documentaries always changes the world forever, whether it's flush toilets or a new type of hat pin. But the machine gun really did. But what happened to William Cantello? What we know of his story originates from a column in a local newspaper in the 1930s, when various witnesses were still alive. The article contains a photograph of Cantello, and Maxim and Cantello look uncannily similar. When Cantello's sons saw a photo of Maxim in a newspaper, they were amazed. It was the image of their missing father. They tracked him down at Waterloo Station and shouted father at him. As they told it, they tried to approach him, but his train pulled away. Cantello, though, seems to have vanished off the face of the earth. His family engaged a private detective to look for him, who supposedly traced him to America, but then the trail went cold. A large sum of money was withdrawn from his bank account, but the bank in question long ago ceased to exist, and there is no record of where the money was sent or where it was withdrawn. To complicate matters, both Cantello and Maxim had large Victorian beards. The late Victorian era was not kind to the art of facial recognition, since most males over 30 sported luxuriant facial hair and all tend to look like a cross between Charles Darwin and a stern Santa. It seems likely, however, that the newspaper photograph captioned as Cantello is in fact Maxim. This doesn't explain, however, what happened to the vanishing gunmaker. Cantello certainly existed. He was well known in Southampton. Gunmaking ran in his family. There are numerous Cantellos. Early in the 19th century, who made various improvements to rifles, and at least one of them moved to America. Maxim, on the other hand, had come to Britain from America, where he had made enemies by arguing with Thomas Edison over who invented the light bulb, and generally making a nuisance of himself. Maxim also complained in his autobiography of a double who was going around the US impersonating him. Was this Cantello, or was it Maxim's own brother, who also looked very similar and also sported an enormous beard? There doesn't seem to be any reason why the various witnesses should invent the tales of the nocturnal gunfire beneath the pub in Bargate Street. Cantello may well have been working on a machine gun, although the type of gunpowder used at the time would have produced too much smoke to make testing in a cellar very feasible. What is really intriguing is whether Cantello and Maxim ever met, and there is evidence to suggest that they did. The daughter of another Southampton marine engineer called Philip Brennan wrote a letter at the time telling how Maxim had come to Southampton to see a type of propeller her father had invented. He had told his staff not to show it to him though because Maxim, she says, had a reputation for brain sucking. This wonderful phrase clearly suggests a tendency to plagiarise ideas. But this is surely typical of how inventors see more successful inventors. It is, however, intriguing. 
it shows that Maxim did visit Southampton and was meeting local engineers. So what did happen to William Cantello? Did he realise he'd been pipped to the post by Maxim and come to a very bad ending trying to sell his own version of the gun? Or was there some Victorian melodrama going on underneath it all? A mistress or similar entanglement? leaving his family looking for reasons to explain their father's sudden departure. It's a mystery worthy of Sherlock Holmes. From the listverse.com, 10 Beasts That Used To Be Mythical. This list is about animals that were once thought to be mere legends, but were eventually confirmed to be real. Today many of these mythical beasts are so well known that we couldn't imagine a zoo without them. Number 10. The Gorilla. As famous as gorillas are today, there was a time in which they were no more than a myth. Explorers would return from African jungles and tell stories about hairy giant man-beasts of terrible strength and temper with a nasty habit of abducting and raping women. Such stories were dismissed by scientists as nonsense and as a result the gorilla was unknown to science until quite recently. It is believed that the first gorilla report comes from Greek explorer Hanno from the 5th century BC. Hanno travelled to the western coasts of Africa, possibly to Sierra Leone and even the Gulf of Guinea, and reported an island filled with savage people, most of them women and covered with hair. Our interpreters call them gorillae. Maybe we should mention that not everyone is convinced about Hanno having encountered actual gorillas. His gorillae could have been chimpanzees. Much later, in 1625, British explorer Andrew Battle reported seeing a monster covered with hair except for the face and hands, which slept in trees and fed on fruit. According to him, this monster was most similar to a man, but with the stature of a giant. Gorillas remained obscure and poorly understood for many more years, being often thought of as brutish, unintelligent and extremely violent. It wasn't until 1847 that a Westerner, physician Thomas Savage, 
managed to obtain several gorilla bones, including a skull, while in Liberia, and published the very first formal description of the great ape. The next decade, explorer Paul de Chalou became the first modern European to see a live gorilla during his expeditions to equatorial Africa. As for the mountain gorilla, a different, larger species, it was believed to be a myth until 1902. Number 9. The Okapi the okapi was well known to the ancient Egyptians, although it was not native to Egypt, and of course to the pygmies who lived in the same Central African forests. Europeans, however, didn't believe the pygmy stories. They considered the okapi to be a mythical creature and even called it the African unicorn. In 1890, Henry Stanley explored the jungles of the Congo and he became interested in a native word Okapi, which he misheard and wrote as Ati. The pygmies used the word both for the non-native domestic horse and for another large animal they occasionally caught and ate. A certain Henry Johnston, who was to become the governor of Uganda, read Stanley's book and became obsessed over the strange creature. He managed to find tracks from the animal as well as pieces of striped skin which, according to the pygmies, belonged to the mysterious Okapi. Johnston sent the skin to London, where scientists, for the first time, took interest in the beast and hypothesised about its identity. Was it an unknown species of jungle zebra, or maybe a late-surviving prehistoric Hipparian proto-horse? Since they didn't have a better specimen, they named the animal Equus Johnstoni tentatively assuming that it was a member of the horse and zebra genus. In 1901, finally, Johnston managed to get an entire skin and a skull. He sent them to London and scientists were utterly surprised. The animal was incredibly similar to some fossilised remains of an ancient giraffe relative found in 1838 in Greece. The mystery was solved. The mysterious African unicorn did exist, but it wasn't a zebra or horse, but the last and only living relative of the giraffe. Number 8. The Giant Panda Today these mostly vegetarian black and white bears are among the most famous animals in the world. What scientists call charismatic megafauna. However, they were practically unknown for centuries, even in China. Indeed, although Chinese artists have constantly depicted black bears and bamboo forests since ancient times, the giant panda was never depicted until the 20th century. Rumours and reports of a strange white bear found in Chinese mountains were regarded as myths until 1869, when French missionary Armand David sent the skin of a hunted specimen to Europe. It was only then that pandas were finally accepted by scientists as a real animal. Giant pandas were finally seen alive by a European in 1916, when German zoologist Hugo Wilgold got to see and buy a cub. Don't get excited. 
they don't sell baby pandas anymore. And as an interesting side note, giant pandas are known in China as the great bear cat. This is because pandas have vertical pupils, just like cats, but unlike other bears. They were once thought to be giant aberrant relatives to the raccoon, but DNA testing has proved what seemed obvious from the beginning, that they are a true, if unusual, member of the bear family. Number seven, the giraffe. Yep, the uber-famous giraffe was once a mythical animal. We have to admit that, even if we don't know giraffes and someone showed us a picture of one, we would have trouble to believe in its existence. Just take a look at them. They are weird-looking animals. Giraffes were relatively familiar to the ancient Egyptians, even though they were not native to Egypt. Pharaoh Ramses II is said to have kept a giraffe, among other exotic pets, in his private zoo. The Greeks, on the other hand, thought of the giraffe as a legendary beast, the camelopard, which was said to be the result of the mating of a camel and a leopard. Even today, the giraffe's scientific name, Giraffa camelopardalis, pays tribute to this legend. The Romans were more used to the giraffe after some of them were captured and sent to Rome, both as exotic pets for the emperor and as an exhibition in the Circus Maximus. After this, however, no more giraffes were known in Europe until 1486, when a live specimen was given to Lorenzo de' Medici in Florence. It is also known that when the Chinese first saw a giraffe in 1414, they thought it was a quillen, a legendary beast of Chinese mythology. And even today, the word Kirin is used for the giraffe in several Asian countries. Interesting side note. Giraffes did exist in Asia and even in Europe in prehistoric times. Number six, the Tarkin. In the well-known Greek myth of Jason and the Argonauts, Jason is sent by his evil uncle, Pelias, into a suicidal mission to get hold of the Golden Fleece. This was the fleece of a semi-divine ram named Chrysomalus, who had been sired by Poseidon himself. Some experts believe that the legend of the Golden Fleece was inspired by the golden coat of a real animal, today known as Golden Tarkin. This animal is found in the Himalaya. Although described by Western scientists in 1815, the Tarkin has always been somewhat of a legend. In Bhutan, its origins are said to be supernatural. It is said that in the 15th century, a powerful and wise Lama visited the country and was urged by his followers to perform a miracle. Eventually, the Lama accepted and told them to bring him a whole goat and a whole cow. People did as he asked, and the Lama, much to the amazement of everyone, ate all the meat of the goat and the cow, leaving only the bones. But this was not the real miracle. Once he finished his unlikely meal, the Lama took parts of the cow and the goat and pieced them together, forming a new animal. Then, with a snap of his fingers, he gave it life. 
the strange resulting animal was the Tarkin. Due to this interesting legend, the Tarkin is a most revered creature in Bhutan and is considered the national animal in that country. Number 5. The Python Today we tend to imagine dragons as being rather dinosaur-like, but early historians actually described them as being huge serpents that killed their prey by coiling around them and crushing them to death. Isidore de Seville said the dragon was the largest kind of serpent, while Pliny the Elder described colossal battles between the constricting dragon and the elephant. According to him, the dragon would coil around the elephant and strangle it, but then the elephant would fall to the ground vanquished and crush the dragon under its weight. He also mentioned that dragons were found in Ethiopia, but that the largest ones were found in India. In the 8th century AD, St. John of Damascus said, I am not telling you, after all, that there are no dragons. Dragons exist, but they are serpents born from other serpents. When just born and young, they are small, but then they grow up and mature. They become so big and fat that they exceed other serpents in length and size. It is said that they grow up to 30 cubits or more and become as thick as a huge log. This all sounds like a description of python snakes, which do kill prey by constriction and are the largest snakes in the old world, growing up to 8 or 9 metres and sometimes more, and do live in Ethiopia and India. In other words, pythons and dragons are one and the same. Even the name Python is borrowed from an ancient dragon from Greek mythology, so big and powerful that only the sun god Apollo could defeat her. Although occasionally some pythons were captured and sent for exhibition to Rome in ancient times, they held their mythical status for a long time. Number 4 the giant squid. One of the most famous mythical sea monsters is the Kraken. Legends of this formidable denizen of the deep, armed with powerful tentacles and strong enough to sink a ship, were told in Norway and Iceland, and according to modern scientists, were based on sightings of the giant squid. Since the giant squid prefers to live in abyssal waters, it is almost never seen alive by humans. Even so, dead specimens are sometimes washed ashore, and so the existence of the creature has been reported since ancient times. Pliny the Elder mentioned them in his treaty on natural history, and said that they could grow up to 9.1 metres long. Now we know they grow bigger. As well as the legend of the Kraken, the giant squid may have inspired other classic myths including the Greek Scylla, a multi-headed monster that snatched men from their ships and devoured them, and even the sea serpents that strangled Laocoon and his sons in the Iliad. But even though giant squids were reported by Aristotle and Pliny the Elder, 
They were so fantastic that even later scientists still had trouble to believe in their existence. In 1861, the crew of the Ellington dispatch steamer had a close encounter with a giant squid and even managed to get hold of a piece of the animal's tail. However, they were ridiculed by scientists who told them that such a creature was against the laws of nature. Even today, the giant squid maintains its semi-legendary status. We all know it exists, but it has been called the most elusive image in natural history. It was only in 2004 that the giant squid was finally photographed in its natural habitat. The first video was taken two years later. Number 3. The Komodo Dragon it is sometimes said that Komodo dragons were discovered by a downed pilot from World War I who swam to a remote island in Indonesia and reported seeing giant reptiles on the island's coasts. Unfortunately, no one believed him. Other versions say that the dragons had already been reported before and that eventually the rumours of land crocodiles and prehistoric monsters roaming Komodo and the nearby islands became too persistent to be ignored. In 1910, a Dutch lieutenant decided to go to the island and get evidence of the creature's existence. He succeeded and sent a photo and the skin of a gigantic lizard to Bogor, Java, where the director of the Zoological Museum described it formally for the first time. Later in 1926, a much-publicised expedition to Komodo resulted in the capture of two live specimens. This expedition inspired one of the most famous movies of all times, King Kong, which was also about prehistoric animals found on a remote island. The movie's director even wanted to have Komodo dragons in the movie, but this was ultimately not possible, and he replaced them with animated dinosaurs. Komodo dragons are the world's largest lizards. One modern-day myth about them is that they lack venom, and that their victims die of blood poisoning thanks to the deadly bacteria in the dragon's mouth. Although it is true that dragons have plenty of dangerous bacteria on their saliva, Recent studies have suggested that they are also able to produce powerful hemorrhage and paralysis-inducing venom, making them the largest venomous animals alive. Number 2. The Beaked Whale The Xiphius or Sea Owl was a legendary sea monster described in medieval times, which was said to have huge eyes and a beak-like mouth, hence its name. The creature was described as being of enormous size and able to destroy a ship if enraged, although, fortunately, it was also extremely difficult to see. Today, scientists believe that the inspiration for this myth were the little-known beaked whales. These mysterious cetaceans look like giant dolphins, but are not related closely to them. They live in deep waters and are rarely seen on the surface, although they of course need to breathe air, as do all whales. Most of what we know about them comes from dead specimens washed ashore. 
Some specimens are only known from carcasses or even bones found on some remote beach. As a tribute to the mythical creature, one species of beaked whale is called Xiphius by scientists. Beaked whales deserve the second place in the list because they were mythical creatures in the past and they are even semi-mythical today. Scientists would give anything to know more about these huge creatures, but the sea owl doesn't seem willing to reveal its secrets just yet. Number 1. The Tiger The tiger is one of the best-known animals in the world. But this was not always the case. To the ancient Greek, the tiger was a legendary animal known as the manticore, from Persian Matya Man and Zwar Kama, and described in Indica, a treaty by a certain Theseus about India, which used to be popular among Greek naturalists and historians, but is sadly lost today. According to Pausanias in his description of Greece, the beast described by Theseus in his Indian history, which he says is called Manticorus by the Indians and Man-Eater by the Greek, I am inclined to believe this is the tiger. But that it has three rows of teeth along each jaw and spikes at the tip of its tail with which it defends itself at close quarters while it hurls them like an archer's arrows at more distant enemies, all this I think a false story that the Indians pass on from one to another, owing to their excessive dread of the beast. It makes sense for the tiger to be the inspiration for the manticore. The latter was said to live in India and southeastern Asia, the tiger's main range, and to be lion-like in size and appearance but with reddish fur. It was also said to have the tail of a scorpion, which could have been inspired by the black rings and the black tip on the tiger's tail. And it was reported to be so fierce that it would snatch adult men from villages and drag them into the jungle, after which they were never seen again. The same was often the case with the great cat. Even though tigers were often seen in the circus in ancient Rome, they weren't seen in Europe for a long time after the empire's fall, and they once again became a legend. Fantastic stories about them were told in medieval bestiaries. In some of them, hunters would steal tiger cubs, and when the adult tiger chased them, they would throw a mirror or a crystal ball, and the tiger would either stop to admire its own reflection or mistake it for its cub and abandon the chase. It was also famous for its speed. The name Tigris itself, from which tiger derives, is actually the ancient Persian word for arrow.
A few characters on the side of a 3,000-year-old earthenware jug, dating back to the time of King David, have stumped archaeologists until now, and a fresh translation may have profound ramifications for our understanding of the Bible. From the www.foxnews.com website, an article by Sasha Bogursky. Message decoded. 3,000-year-old text sheds light on biblical history. Experts had suspected the fragmentary inscription was written in the language of the Canaanites, a biblical people who lived in the present-day Israel. Not so, says one expert who claims to have cracked the code. The mysterious language is actually the oldest form of written Hebrew, placing the ancient Israelites in Jerusalem earlier than previously believed. Hebrew speakers were controlling Jerusalem in the 10th century, which biblical chronology points to as the time of David and Solomon, ancient Near East history and biblical studies expert Douglas Petrovich told foxnews.com. Whoever they were, they were writing in Hebrew like they owned the place, he said. First discovered near the Temple Mount in Jerusalem last year, the 10th century BC fragment has been labelled the Ophel inscription. It likely bears the name of the jug's owners and its contents. If Petrovich's analysis proves true, it would be evidence of the accuracy of Old Testament tales. If Hebrew as a written language existed in the 10th century, as he says, the ancient Israelites were recording their history in real time, as opposed to writing it down several hundred years later. That would make the Old Testament an historical account of real-life events. According to Petrovich, archaeologists are unwilling to call it Hebrew to avoid conflict. It's just the climate among scholars that they want to attribute as little as possible to the ancient Israelites, he said. Needless to say, his claims are stirring up controversy among those who do not like to mix the hard facts of archaeology, dirt, stone and bone, with stories from the Bible. Tel Aviv University archaeologist Israel Finkelstein told Fox News that the Ophel inscription is critical to the early history of Israel. But romantic notions of the Bible shouldn't cloud scientific methods. A message he pushed in 2008 when a similar inscription was found at a site many now call one of King David's palaces. At the time, he warned the Associated Press against the revival in the belief that what's written in the Bible is accurate like a newspaper. Today, he told foxnews.com that the Ophel inscription speaks to the expansion of Jerusalem from the Temple Mount and shows us the growth of Jerusalem and the complexity of the city during that time. But the Bible? Maybe, maybe not. Professor Aaron Mayer of Barn-Lahn University agrees that some archaeologists are simply relying too heavily on the Bible itself as a source of evidence. Can we raise arguments about the Kingdom of David and Solomon? That seems to me a grandiose upgrade, he told Haritz recently. In the past decade, there's been a renaissance in Israel of archaeologists looking for historical evidence of biblical stories. 
More recently, a team led by archaeologist Yussi Garfinkel wrapped up a 10-year excavation of the possible palace of King David, overlooking the valley where the Hebrew king victoriously smote the giant Goliath. Garfinkel has another explanation as to the meaning behind the Ophel inscription. I think it's like a cell phone text, he told Fox News. If someone takes a text from us 3,000 years from now, he will not be able to understand it. The writing on the fragmented jug is a type of shorthand farmers of the 10th century used, in his opinion, and not an official way of communication that was passed on. What's more important is that there is a revolution in this type of inscription being found, Garfinkel told Fox News. There have been several from the same time period found across Israel in the past five years. When we find more and more of these inscriptions, maybe not until the next generation, we may have a breakthrough, he said. Submerged in deep water, one of the last things a diver may expect to find 90 feet below the surface is a river view. But that's exactly what awaits those bold enough to dive in Mexico's Cenote Angelita. The eerie landscape of swirling mist looks like a flowing river in the middle of the cave, complete with trees emerging from the surface. From the dailymail.co.uk website, the river under the sea, haunting images of scuba diver exploring a mysterious channel. I'm going to do the story associated with this article because it's quite interesting, but if you do visit the show notes at www.origins.info and click on the link to episode 76 in the Mysteries Abound show notes and then the link to this article, there are a number of quite clear photographs and videos associated with it. Well worth a look. And this article was written by Helen Lawson. The phenomenon can only be seen in person by extremely skilled scuba divers who can cope with exploring the depths of the 180-foot pit. For those who aren't, photographer Anatoly Belushkin filmed his exploration of the Cenote, a cave created by the collapse of limestone bedrock, which then fills with water. To show the drama of the moment, the river comes into sight. Angelita, which translates as Little Angel, lies about a 10-minute drive from the Maya city Tulum, on the east coast of Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula. Cenotes were often used by the Maya for sacrifices, and Angelita has certainly retained its mystique to the present day. For the first 90 feet of the dive, adventurers are swimming through fresh water, with a clear view of the inside of their surroundings, before the river appears below. The mist is actually a thick layer of hydrogen sulphide, about six foot deep, which is caused by the clash between the fresh water at the top of the cave and the salt water that films the bottom half. The chemical compound is often created when the bacterial breakdown of organic matter happens when there's no oxygen around and dissolves, according to Book Your Dive. It looks like the end of the journey, but it is only the halfway point of the exploration. 
divers can switch on their lights and find their way through the relatively short distance before emerging into the salt water. Those who weren't aware that the pictures were taken underwater could easily believe they were looking at a secluded spot in the middle of a forest. The trees and branches lie on top of the collapsed rubble, which fills nearly half of the pit, leaving a narrow passage down the side. Mr. Belushkin said, Under me I see a river, island and fallen leaves. Actually, the river which you can see is a layer of hydrogen sulphide. And remember, visit the show notes. It's probably worth a look if you're into diving and caves and that sort of mysterious stuff. And now to one of the mysteries that I've pondered about for many a year. And I found the answer today on the gizmodo.com website. Why do vitamins make urine bright yellow? If you've ever taken a daily multivitamin, you too might have noticed your urine turning a bright yellowish colour. Take your vitamins and eat some asparagus, and you might just think you're dying the next time you pee. What's happening is that urine will turn a bright, sometimes neon yellow, in response to excess riboflavin. Riboflavin, also known as vitamin B2, is a common ingredient in almost all multivitamins. It was first discovered in 1872 when chemist Alexander Winter Blythe noticed a pigment in milk that was yellow-green. In 1879, it was reported as lactochrome and lactoflavin. It wasn't until the 1930s that the substance giving off a yellow pigment was characterised as riboflavin. The flavin portion coming from the Latin word flavus, meaning yellow or blonde. So, why does riboflavin give off a yellowish colour? Like almost anything that has colour, it all comes down to light absorption. Light, in general, is merely electromagnetic radiation. This radiation comes to us in a waveform and is classified by its wavelength. Shorter wavelengths come to us in the form of X-rays and ultraviolet light. Longer wavelengths come to us in the form of things like microwaves and radio waves. The light we can see is actually only a very narrow band of wavelength between 400 and 700 nanometers in length. The colour is classified by the length. For example, 400 to 500 nanometers will appear blue and 600 to 700 nanometers will appear red. The colours we see are a result of the wavelengths not absorbed by the material. So if a material absorbs light in the 400 to 500 nanometer range which is blue, then the colour we will perceive is the 500 to 700 range, greens, yellows and reds. Riboflavin specifically absorbs light strongly in the 260 to 370 nanometer range. While this falls outside that of light we can see with our eyes, it's riboflavin's ability to absorb light at 450 nanometers, the blues, that gives it its distinctive yellow color. 
So why does it turn pea yellow? The answer is simply how the body gets rid of excess. Several studies have shown that approximately 50% of all excess riboflavin gets excreted in the urine. The same studies show that the maximum amount that can be absorbed in a single dose was about 27 milligrams, with half of that being absorbed in the first 1.1 hours. Given that the recommended adult daily intake of riboflavin is between 1 to 1.6 milligrams per day, and some common doses of riboflavin in multivitamins that I could find are 25, 50 and 100 milligrams. It's easy to see that excess amounts can be easily attained. The result is a nice colour to your urine that, if you're a hypochondriac, may make you think you're dying. As a doctor friend of mine remarked when I was discussing this with him and excessive amounts of unneeded vitamins Americans buy every year, Americans have the most expensive urine in the world. It's like flushing money down the drain. And sure enough, in the morning, some strange things began to happen in Willie's home. But outdoors, strange things were happening too. To the casual observer, Pine Bush, New York, is just like any other town found in northern Orange County. It's small, filled with local flavour, and is currently being encroached upon by chain stores and condos that are slowly replacing the more rural life old-timers of the area are accustomed to. Yes, on the surface, Pine Bush faces the same problems all the other suburbs of the area face. From the www.weirdus.com website, Pine Bush, the UFO capital of New York. But Pine Bush is far from a normal, quiet suburb. If it were as average as it seems at first glance, flocks of outsiders would not have consistently swarmed the town at night for the past quarter of a century racking up trespassing fines and clogging local roads. If Pine Bush was normal in any way, it would be known to conspiracy theorists the world over, and it certainly wouldn't be the subject of almost endless discussion in underground internet chat rooms. If Pine Bush was truly as peaceful as it appears after a single casual glance, locals wouldn't tell tales of their unbelievable sightings on the checkout line at the local supermarkets. They wouldn't have so many stories of treacherous encounters with strange creatures. And they certainly wouldn't make so many wild, incredulous claims about alien abductions and nefarious experiments conducted upon the unsuspecting townsfolk of Pine Bush. No, Pine Bush, New York is no normal Orange County suburb. 
Pine Bush is widely regarded as the UFO capital of the East Coast. The Hudson Valley of New York has long been referred to as the home of some truly strange occurrences. Ghost lights are seen in the woods regularly. Ghosts themselves run rampant through the entire area. And most famously, the Hudson Valley has long been known to attract strange vessels and beings from outer space. Pine Bush came to be known worldwide as the primary destination for these extraterrestrial visitors in the area. Some Pine Bush locals have personal stories of alien sightings, abductions and encounters dating as far back as the 1960s. But the town's reputation as a hotbed of UFO activity was cemented largely during an incredibly active flurry of strange sightings that occurred in the mid-1980s and continued into the 1990s. Throughout the early part of the 80s, a mysterious aircraft that has come to be referred to as the West Chester Boomerang was seen over 2,000 times in the general area, including a handful of sightings in Pine Bush. As the craft's name suggests, however, most of the sightings occurred not in Orange, but in Westchester County. While the sensational Westchester Boomerang was occupying the attention of researchers, curious, quieter, less hyped, but just as strange events were happening on a frighteningly regular basis in Pine Bush. As the hype over the Westchester sightings died down, more and more people began to realise that truly strange, phenomenal things were occurring in the seemingly normal rural village. Locals first began to speak among each other regarding the strange events they were noticing. Many had seen different types of odd aircraft, from the familiar boomerang-shaped vessel to pencil-thin hovering objects to quickly moving balls and beams of light making regular sojourns in the skies above their homes. Furthermore, people began whispering of strange strobe lights that were often seen emanating from forests and wooded areas scattered about town. Many reported hearing strange noises and having odd things happen at the Jewish cemetery on Route 52. Town officials were also confused by the recurring phenomenon happening at a small bridge in town. No matter how many times they would repaint the structure, the paint would quickly peel away for no apparent reason. These stories were told privately, if at all, among confused and scared locals. Many didn't realise that their neighbours were having experiences similar to their own. Most people were unsure of what they had seen or were frightened of being regarded as crazy for their claims. People's attitudes about their experiences started to slowly change in 1991 with the publication of Silent Invasion, the shocking discoveries of a UFO researcher by Ellen Crystal. Crystal, a New Jersey resident, had been travelling to Pine Bush for 11 years, researching stories of alien encounters there. She detailed UFO sightings and other related phenomena in her book and also included a series of controversial photographs said to depict actual run-ins with alien craft. The book made only a very small splash, but did lead to a series of appearances for Crystal on a number of talk shows. A few magazines and television programs visited Pine Bush to conduct their own investigations. 
More importantly, the book outed the town as a focal point of UFO activity and made people much more comfortable about coming forward with their own personal tales. Locals began sharing their stories with each other and they realised the astonishing number of incidents people had experienced in Pine Bush. Many of the stories were completely sensational, telling of groups of dozens of strange aircraft flying over the town at once. People regularly began meeting at certain spots at night to keep their eyes peeled for more UFOs. They became known as sky watchers or UFOers. Over time, more and more people from outside Pine Bush came to join their ranks. The town's reputation grew as more and more sightings occurred. By the middle of the decade, Pine Bush was widely recognised as the most active hub of UFO activity on the east coast of the United States. The town's reputation grew even larger when it was revealed that popular author Whitley Stryber's two books chronicling his personal encounters with alien beings took place in a small cabin he owned just outside the borders of Pine Bush. Large crowds gathered nightly at a number of locations throughout the town. The most attended spot was West Searsville Road. Hundreds of people reported seeing objects in the sky above this desolate street, and as the reports grew in number, so did the crowds. Eventually the number of people sky-watching on West Searsville became so large that the town was forced to prohibit the activity. The crowds were disrupting traffic on the road and people would often wander off onto private property, hassling and waking up residents who were probably so used to UFO visits that they weren't even bothering to go out and look for them anymore. Police would patrol the road each night to make sure crowds were not forming. Their efforts worked on some level, but smaller groups hit the road looking for visitors from behind, and others formed on South Searsville at the Jewish Cemetery on Route 52, which was also the location of strange rumbling sounds and even unidentified animal sightings, and at other spots around the pine bush. People began producing amazing photographs and even videotapes of bizarre objects they witnessed flying in the sky. Local newspapers started reporting people's encounters and some of the reports witnesses had given these papers are truly amazing. One Times Herald Record article told of a sighting by Pine Bush resident John Lewis who videotaped a thin black object flying in the sky. Lewis watched the object move slowly downward at a 45 degree angle for about five minutes, the paper recounted. Then he rushed for his video camera. The unidentified flying object was pencil-shaped and black with a long tail. There was not a glint of reflection from the sun. Maybe it is a missile, maybe it's an asteroid, Lewis says. I don't know. It's beyond me. It's not a plane and not a cloud. The Poughkeepsie Journal ran an article detailing the activities of the United Friends Observer Society, UFOs for short a support group founded in Pine Bush in 1993 for people who'd had encounters with or were abducted by the aliens that frequent the town. Local Bill Wyand told the journal's reporter of his personal experiences with aliens. I did recently have an invasion and it terrified me, he said. It started like it always does, with the noise in my ears, and it just kind of rumbles through. 
I couldn't move my body, but I could move my eyes, and I knew the room was filled with entities. The article goes on to detail other people's abductions, including one researcher who claimed that they immobilised me and undressed me and put this device on my genitals and took a sperm sample. In another Times Herald Record article, a number of people shared their stories of odd occurrences at Pine Bush. Among them were the incredible recollections of Jim Smith, a Pine Bush resident and sergeant at Woodbourne Correctional Facility. He told the paper, I've seen so many of the beings, I know exactly how they move. They're different sizes, different shapes, but when you see them so much, you know they're not of this earth. Not long ago I saw this figure, about six foot six, and dressed all in black standing beneath the traffic light in Pine Bush. I said to Hilda, my fiance, what's that woman doing? Hilda said, oh my God, I thought I was the only one who saw the thing. When she moved, it wasn't like walking. It wasn't in frames either, like most of them move. In frames, there's some place, and then they're suddenly in another place, like time-lapse photography. But this one moved horizontally. In Pine Bush, you see things you don't expect. I've seen a cat with no head walking across the floor. It just had a piece of cardboard where the head should be. A lot of people in Pine Bush tell me they've seen that cat, but not everyone can see the cat or the beings. You have to be open to things like that. These days, most people in Pine Bush are open to things like that. UFO encounters and other unexplainable incidents have become a fact of life in Pine Bush. People trade stories regularly, and a number of local businesses have embraced the town's strange reputation. Butch Hunt's Barbershop on Main Street in Pine Bush features a UFO-themed sign hanging out front, and the interior is riddled with articles about sightings and photos said to capture images of unidentified flying objects. Another local business has gone so far as to name itself after Pine Bush's reputation. A diner has opened with the name Cup and Saucer. In any other town, this would refer to a coffee cup and saucer. In Pine Bush, the sign outside the diner proudly displays a cup and a flying saucer. An alien aircraft hovers above the coffee shop. Not surprisingly, this diner has served as a haven for UFO enthusiasts, who flock there not just for food and drink, but to share stories of experiences, tips on the best locations to sight UFOs, and to otherwise network with others who believe Pine Bush is in fact a hub of extraterrestrial activity here on Earth. By all accounts, the UFO activity around Pine Bush has lessened considerably since its glory days in the 1980s and 90s. Most attribute this to the development that has occurred in the area. The past 20 years have seen condos fill in what used to be farmland in the area, and as this has occurred, UFO sightings have decreased substantially. Other phenomena are still reported as well, including sightings of strange shadowy figures, strange noises permeating desolate areas, flashing lights and more. UFOs are still seen in Pine Bush much more often than they are in your average town, but not with the incredible frequency of the past two decades.
The music for today's podcast came from the musicalley.com website. The bandwidth was provided by TalkShoe at www.talkshoe.com. And don't forget we have a Facebook site for the podcast, letting you know what's happening, what things are occurring, when shows are being released and that sort of thing. And if you visit the show notes and click on the Facebook link, it will take you straight there. And to bring the podcast to a close this week, an article from the www.creepypasta.com website. The Art of Jacob Emery. And this is credited to Peter Devine. Ghost stories? Nah, we don't have anything like that around here. We do have the story of Jacob, but that's about as close as you'll get. You really want to know? Well, I'm not supposed to tell you, but all right. Just no interrupting. I don't have the patience for it. How to describe Jacob Emery? Well, I guess you could say he was the kind of guy you could never take notice of. That isn't to say he was a bad kid. In any sense, many people in this town thought he was the most reliable person for an odd job in the state. But he never really excelled in anything. He was the living proof behind the statement, Jack of all trades, ace of none. Most of this was due to his own lack of will. He dabbled in damn near everything this town could offer him automobiles, radio operations, store management, what have you, but he never stuck with anything. His friends and workers went after him about it a number of times, but everybody got the same unsatisfying response. It just wasn't enough. Needless to say, any friends he kept were either very patient or never spoke of the matter altogether. It was probably inevitable then that Jacob would leave to go abroad. I don't remember where he went, but I think Gertrude down the street knew before she passed on. You'll have to scout someone else if you ever get curious. In any case, no one even tried to stop him. Everybody thought that a little travel would stamp the ambition out of him, or else feed it until it was no longer an issue. Hell, we even gave him a sending off party, which I thought was pretty nice of everybody. So anyway, he was gone for... Six or seven years, can't remember. You'll have to check with someone else about that too. Anyways, he came back, eventually, and he had changed, obviously enough. He was amiable, energetic, all smiles all the time, and we all quickly learned why. He showed us a souvenir he'd brought back. A solid black stick, the length of a pencil, but the texture of chalk. We all wondered why on earth such a simple thing would prompt such a spring in his step until he gave us his demonstration. He took a piece of paper with this stick. God, there's got to be a better word for it with this stick. He drew a crude circle. It dropped and rested on the border of the paper like a stone. It didn't leave the paper, but it acted out on it, sort of like an old movie projector on a screen. Son, I know how crazy that sounds. And if you feel like playing sceptic, then you can leave an old man to his craziness. But I know what I saw, even if everyone's been hushing it up. And that stone he drew dropped. Jake even passed around the paper, and as it was being passed, it rolled around as the paper got tilted. None of us had any words for it. Hell, 
What was there to say? But he continued drawing demonstration after demonstration for us. Stick figures in various pageants and plays, doing everything from fighting each other to making perfect human pyramids, and we all thought it was incredible. That was all the go-ahead he needed. He announced that he planned to put on shows to pay for rent and food, where he would draw anything the crowd members wanted. That we talked to some length about, and he eventually convinced us that it would be safe. His drawings ethical, the practice lucrative and unique, and the attention would not go anywhere outside of the town's borders. Poor Jacob. If I'd not been so swept up in the moment, I might have read the signs right then and there, and saved the sorry son of a bitch by snapping the terrible thing in half. But I was younger, we all were, and we saw no problem with encouraging him with what we all saw as an incredible experience to be shared with everyone else. Now he didn't have any big radio or television connections, mind you, and the internet wouldn't come around for another decade. So he did what all people on a shoestring budget do. He advertised his show with flyers. Flyers might not mean anything to you city folk, but in a small town they gain a fair glance over from time to time, and what's more, Jacobs managed to stick out by having little figures jump up and down and whatnot to get people's attention. His first show must have gotten nearly 60 or so people, probably a lot more than that. And his shows were fantastic. Someone would shout out a scene from a play or a comedy sketch, and Jake's hand would fly over a white wall like a bird. He'd been holding back when he made that stone, that's for damn sure. His illustrations were all spot on, and he could make an incredible human figure in minutes. Come to think of it, I don't remember any of his scenes lasting more than ten minutes to make. They were all really well done scenes too. Not only could you see a knight charge a castle, Jake would draw the castle's interior as well, like a wedding cake split down the middle. So you could see the knight scale the wall, fight his way through the levels to the dungeon, fight back out with the princess, and make a leaping jump off the castle parapets onto his getaway horse, all in complete silence. Not realistic, no, but that was part of the appeal. None of us went in there expecting something real. When a scene or a sketch was finished, either the characters would leave off a wall or he'd cover the wall with white paint. This was good, in a way, it gave the shows a time limit so that when he'd finished with all of the four walls in the room, everyone knew the show was over until the paint dried. Jake, meanwhile, was changing in a bad way. I'd mentioned that upon his return he'd been extremely energetic. Well, that energy, that vitality or fervour, or whatever you would call it, it never left him. Not for an instant. Far from it. It seemed to grow in him, and he enjoyed it all too much. His eyes grew wider. He slept gradually less over time. His statements and opinions were more radical and frenzied. And though he was never a pushover, he was starting to make people nervous in his company. A month or two passed, and Jake's audience grew like a wildfire. Nearly everyone in the town paid to see Jake's art in action, and he had to rent out larger and larger places for them to sit. He now didn't stop after one scene was done. He moved directly on to the next, put on the next blank space on the wall, sometimes to the intriguing effect of causing scenes to mingle, which the crowd loved. 
The subject matter got more wild and immoral. The monsters got more bizarre and creative. The fighters using more impossible weaponry, all for the sakes of the crowd's interests. Jake got steadily more indulgent, which he figured was from the money, and he became a drinker and a womanizer, neither of which got rid of that vitality, by the way. Some of those women claimed that they'd woken up in the middle of the night to see him scribbling with that stick on a drawing pad, a gigantic grin on his face, and while most of them said that they'd assumed he was drawing them in the nude, there's rumours that one or two of them got glances at the notepad. Those anonymous few supposedly said that those drawings absolutely weren't nude pictures, but neither of them, whoever they are, will say what he was drawing. Don't bother looking for the notepad or flyers, though. They're all gone now. I'm getting off track. Point is, he was hitting the bottle, and that's important, because it was that drinking that would eventually ruin everything. On the night of one of his performances, he walked in front of his cheering crowd. It was immediately apparent to everybody that he was completely drunk. I was in the front row, and I could smell the bourbon on him from ten feet away. The show started. He went through a bunch of sketches and scenarios the crowd recommended, when at the end someone asked that he draw himself. Everyone cheered the idea. I guessed they'd been wondering what his creations thought of him, and he eventually obliged. No sooner had Jake finished connecting the final two lines on his coat than every single character across the vast, expansive wall all stopped and looked directly at that illustration. Lovers stopped kissing, clowns stopped laughing, robots stopped fighting pirates. Everything stopped and looked at the Jacob illustration. The crowd died almost instantly. I remember Jake's face at that moment, pale white, full of terrible comprehension at his mistake and looking desperately for the cans of white paint he'd forgotten to put out before the show. Everyone else? They were looking at the fake Jacob. That Jacob reached into his jacket pocket, pulled out a black stick of his own, and as we all watched, drew a door. He pushed on his side, and the door swung open, allowing him to walk through onto the floor of the auditorium. The rest was an absolute hellish pandemonium. People screamed and ran for the exits as Jacob's characters, both those currently on the wall and those which had previously left before being covered up, ran out of their own exit, throwing pies, shooting lasers, blowing fire and poison and the impossible. I was near enough the exit to escape, and gave only one backwards glance. The scene will haunt me forever. Jacob Emery was being dragged by his creations, kicking and screaming through the door his copy had made. The auditorium burned down, obviously enough, but I have no idea how many characters escaped and what happened to the fake Emery or how many people died. The fire brought the fire department from the nearest cities up to over a hundred miles away. They in turn brought the police force, which brought the government, which hushed up everything. They took the flyers and any art Jacob had made and swore everyone to secrecy or else life detainment. The fire was blamed on a cigarette in the garbage during a basketball game, and we all eventually went on with our lives. Jacob was made to never have existed. In retrospect, I realise everything, 
Jacob hadn't been creating illustrations. Illustrations don't move, much less act or attack. They're just images people see, shadows made to look like real things. Jacob had been making life actual thinking things in some alternate dimension, using a power that was never meant to fall to mortal hands. He got drunk on his power. His punishment was probably well deserved. Incidentally, the government screwed up on two different accounts. They did a damn good job silencing everyone, but the proof remains. The ruins are still there, you know. The auditorium's ruins. I hear they're going to start reconstruction soon, which will wipe out any remaining evidence someone can definitely see. But I went back there once, several years after the fire. Just once. Amidst the rubble covered in ash, I saw something squirming. I looked closer. It was Jacob Emery's hand on the wall. Exactly like it had been there three years ago. Sweaty but calloused, I remember. But it was constantly flailing, as if the body it was supposed to be attached to was still writhing in flames. That was mistake number one. Number two was those creations. Like I said, I don't know how many escaped, nor how many the government agents found and caught, but I will say only this. Those tall grass meadows on the outskirts of town? Don't go into them. Ever. You were asking about those white figures you've seen at night, right? This town doesn't have ghost stories. Well, everyone, that concludes episode 76 of the Mysteries Abound podcast. Hope you enjoyed today's show. And until next time, this is Paul saying bye for now, everyone, and keep well. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.